Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast and Eid Mubarak. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress is back and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is proposing a one-year debt increase and spending cuts. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg visited Kiev. Ukraine is preparing for its offensive. The Ukraine contact group is meeting for the 11th time as allies work to rush more supplies uh, to uh, Ukraine as uh, Russian troops uh, appear to be beheading Ukrainian soldiers. Defense Secretary Austin said he expects Sweden to join NATO this summer. Top secret U.S. intelligence continues to drip out, including Ukrainian military plans, Washington's frustration with low Canadian defense spending, and China's new hypersonic drones and satellite hacking. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called for a constructive economic relationship with China, which Beijing has ignored. Indo-Pacific nations are coming closer together as the U.S. commander in the region says that he's got enough munitions in case of a war over Taiwan. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, joining us from sunny Vilnius, uh, Lithuania, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and uh, aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast that is a month uh, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship. And uh, he is now teaching in Paris uh, at Sciences Po, one of France's leading institutions, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back to the show. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air uh, warfare uh, coverage. Michael and Dove, welcome back to the program. Uh, we have uh, missed you, uh, but hope you are tanned, rested, and ready uh, for what's uh, to come. Uh, Jim and Patrick, thanks so much for joining us as, as usual. Michael, it's been a while since we've had you on and a lot's been going on, even though uh, the uh, uh, Congress has been out of session, obviously, for spring break. Kevin McCarthy is proposing a one-year debt ceiling increase, but he also wants sharp spending cuts. You've discussed those uh, in the past. Uh, we've heard uh, yesterday from the Airland Subcommittee Chairman Rob Whitman, uh, who basically said that he doesn't see a lot more money going to DOD and, and trade-offs will, will have to be made. Bring us up to speed on what's going on in the Hill. Obviously, the White House doesn't sound it's all, like it's all that interested in negotiating this. Where are we headed and what does it mean for defense spending? Okay, sure. Uh, look, I think we're, we're making progress, but we're still not in a very good place. Uh, as you recall, about three weeks ago, uh, Speaker McCarthy and President Biden exchanged letters where McCarthy pressed Biden saying that he's been missing in action ever since their first meeting, uh, accuses uh, you know, his behavior is being reckless on the debt ceiling and told him to have your people call my people. And Biden responded the same day with a letter saying, hey, great, thanks for your letter. You know, I laid out my proposal. Uh, it's time for you to lay out yours. So that's exactly what, you know, Kevin McCarthy is is now doing, uh, where they released on Wednesday earlier this week, their plan, which they call Limit, Save, uh, a Grow Act of 2023. And, you know, what that does is a lot of things that we've talked about previously. It, it sets discretionary spending levels at FY22 levels and capping growth for at 1% per year for 10 years, which is well below inflation. It would claw back some of the unspent COVID funds. Uh, it would also repeal funding for those 87,000 IRS agents 
that Biden had funded in the um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Again, that's something that uh, to me is kind of a gimmick because the IRS actually collects revenue and CBO has actually said that will cost money, not save money, but it's something that plays well with their base. Uh, this proposal would also require uh, work, uh, work in order to get food stamps and other government benefits. Uh, it would also require uh, that they uh, it would also include the House Republicans uh, signature energy legislation that passed right before the break, which would increase production uh, and export American energy and also includes uh, permitting reform. Uh, it would end uh, Biden's student loan forgiveness. Uh, it would repeal some of the tax credits that were also in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, it would include something called the RAINS Act, uh, which would require congressional approval of uh, major agency regulations before agencies could implement them. Uh, and it defines major agency regulations as those that have financial impact on the US economy of $100 million or more or increase consumer prices or have significant harmful effects uh, on the economy. And lastly, as, as you pointed out, it's a one year uh, extension. Uh, it only takes us till March 31st of next year or 1.5 trillion, whichever comes first. Uh, why they would want to go through this painful exercise all over again next year and an election year of all years is is truly beyond me. And frankly, I asked some members of the Republican leadership, if you get all these things you're asking for, uh, what is it you could possibly ask for next year? If you're not going to be touching entitlements and you're not going to touch revenue and defense, where else is there uh, to cut? And of course, there's no answer. Um, now, as far as defense goes, it's very interesting. This proposal doesn't say anything about defense. It talks about uh, capping F at FY22 levels and caps growth at 1%. So that really hands the decision on defense spending over to the uh, appropriators and, what we, and, and also, to some degree, the authorizers. And what we've been told you know, behind closed doors, it seems that the Armed Services Committee would like to add anywhere from 10 to $15 billion to the top line. And the appropriators right now in the House are talking about $5 billion uh, to the top line. Uh, we're hearing rumors out of the Senate of a possible increase of up to $30 billion uh, over there. So, uh, and, and look, those increases are not insignificant based on, on where we are. Uh, but that would also mean even deeper cuts in the non-defense uh, domestic discretionary. Now, of course, the White House uh, came out very strong against this, this, this proposal, saying this blueprint uh, will devastate hardworking American families. And every House Republican who votes for this bill is voting to cut education, veterans, medical care, uh, cancer research, meals on wheels, food safety, law enforcement, uh, things like that. And you know, Democrats you know, led by Biden, you know, Schumer and Jeffries are, are saying that they're standing by the position not to negotiate and they want a clean debt ceiling hike. And I also don't think now it's a coincidence that Biden has said he's going to announce his uh, reelection campaign on Tuesday. Because uh, that is a way to draw very stark contrast with the Republicans next week, since this bill will likely be on the on the on the floor next Wednesday or Thursday for a vote. He could draw clear distinctions between himself and, and the Republicans next week. And it's not clear whether this bill really can pass. Remember, they only have a five vote, uh, five seat majority, so they can only afford to lose four votes. And there are folks on the far right that are saying they still want changes uh, to this legislation. And there are several people who are moderates who are undecided or right now are saying that they would vote against it. And there are also some of the people on the far right who are saying publicly, this is the deal. This is not a negotiation. This is where we need right. to be. And if the president and the Senate don't agree to this, we're going to walk away. So that you know, also forecasts you know, problems for, for, for McCarthy uh, in the future. Now, there's also a lot of anxiety on the Democratic side on this. And there's a growing contingent of folks on the House 
pressing their leadership and the White House to negotiate. And also Senator Manchin came out publicly uh, saying he applauds McCarthy on his debt ceiling bill. And while he doesn't agree with everything proposed in it, uh, he says at least you know, there's a bill moving to prevent default. And he's calling on Biden to negotiate uh, right now. Um, and you know the timing now is changing as well. I mean, we had said on an earlier podcast that we thought we had till mid-August, but now Goldman Sachs warned earlier this week that because of weak tax collections, that the the end date uh, for the debt ceiling uh, could be as early as uh, mid June, and I'm hearing from folks that they think it could be as bad as late May. Uh, so that also takes the option of, of a uh, discharge petition off the table, which we talked about previously, because that would take at least 37 legislative days to accomplish, which would which would take us well into mid-July at that point. So you know, the Senate's you know, being hands off right now. McConnell's made it clear that this is McCarthy's uh, fight uh, that right now they're saying they'll uh, oppose a, a clean debt ceiling bill. Uh, but. You know, I think right now, you know, we're going to be talking about things like um, defaults, uh, shutdowns and CRs. At the same time, you know, this week, the House Armed Services Committee uh, subcommittee on readiness led by Mike Waltz at a hearing where he, you know, raged against the threat of uh, of CRs. And he he talked, you know, uh, truthfully that, you know, not having those new starts is critical and devastating. But uh, and he's right. And his witnesses backed him up. But I think that, uh, you know, the, the path we're on now uh, is not a very uh, positive path. Uh, Dove, I want to uh, bring you into this because you're somebody who's uh, sat in the chair. I mean, I applaud Chairman Waltz uh, for what he's saying, because I think we all know how destructive, uh, you know, I mean, we, we've heard from defense official after defense official for the last you know, decade and a half uh, about why continuing resolutions are a bad thing. How do you think uh, this plays out? Dove, uh, from from your perspective, because I mean, right, when we expend all other options, we tend uh, to do the right thing. But as we've noted on this program before, we, you know, had a debt downgrade that we haven't lived off yet from the last time we played with fiscal fire like this. Well, uh, I, I think sure, Chairman Waltz is right. There have been hearings about uh, CRs and the impact of CRs and new starts. The uh, the administration just put in some language that it wants Congress to approve that would give the service secretaries more flexibility in having new starts, even when there's a CR. We'll see how far that goes, because there are frankly two problems here. The one is at the end of the day, the appropriators and the appropriation staff really don't like new starts if they can't control them. And of course, if you've got a CR and you allow new starts, you've basically not control them. Uh, so that's one issue. The other issue, of course, is at a time when, as as Michael just explained in such great detail, you're getting a hat. You don't know where the debt ceiling is going. You don't know uh, what kind of a deal, if there's a deal, uh, would be negotiated. Um, that's not exactly the best time to start worrying about whether you can get around CRs or or totally avoid them. Uh, there's a real problem here, and it's going to be further complicated. And, and Michael mentioned this in passing, but I think it's a huge deal. As soon as Mr. Biden says he's running for president, everything is now about a presidential election. It's going to make the uh, Republicans, especially the Republican right, dig in their heels even more. It's going to make it very awkward for Democrats to talk about a deal behind the presumptive presidential candidates who happens to be president's back. Uh, this is going to just make things even tougher, in my view. 
in indeed. And it's I, I look, I, I think we're all being remarkably Pollyanna about this. At the end of the day, everybody wants something. Um, what you know, everybody wants something out of the system. Tax cuts are spending as well. Right. I mean, this is one of the worst tax seasons on uh, record uh, as um, everybody sort of strains to adapt uh, to uh, new, new rules and the like. Uh, and, you know, we're all living longer. We have higher expectations of government and somehow or another, we don't want to find a way to pay that. Uh, and, and so it puts us consistently in problematic uh, territory. Michael, you have one other point before I go to Jim, because we've we got to go to Ukraine and Asia and Europe and everything else. But g- give us uh, one more. Uh, you had one more point to make. Yeah, it's one more uh, point. You know, it's interesting. You know, one of the many concessions that McCarthy had to make in order to become speaker was to promise regular order uh, in the House and single subject bills. And here we go. Their first you know, big, most important, I would argue, piece of legislation has zero regular order on this massive debt bill. And it's filled up with everything from energy policy to fiscal policy to student loans. So it even violates the, what they agreed to. Uh, and he's being pushed to do so by the people who forced him to agree to do uh, regular order and, and, and single subject bills. So, um, you know, it's uh, it, uh, it doesn't bode well, I think, for the, the rest of the year about how things are going to work, because I think that these guys on the far right are going to continue to hold over McCarthy's head the threat of a motion to vacate the chair. And I think that if if they can get this bill passed and it does not uh, end up being the final deal after all, because I think this will force uh, the Democrats to the negotiating table if they can get this off the floor next week. And it's a big if. But obviously, this will not be the final deal. And then how will people on the far right react when this is not the final deal uh, to raise the debt? It's it's politics, right? It's all about negotiation. So the whole thing of, you know, hostage taking and everything doesn't work. This is why you need professional legislators. I, I want a professional to do my heart surgery, to fix my car and to fly my plane or to do my lobbying for me. There you go. Uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, for you or somebody qualified to be comptroller or during European policy or Asia policy. Right. And at the end of the day, you want professional politicians who know how to make a deal. And we've moved away from that. Dove, you've got a quick point you want to make before I go to uh, our other professionals on the team. Yeah, very quickly. uh, We all know that during an election year, things get harder as soon as Mr. Biden announces it comes an election year. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, Jim. Uh, thanks very much for joining us from sunny Paris, where uh, 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 dumpster fires sadly are continuing if uh, American focus on it uh, has uh, declined in part because uh, the uh, the French high court sided with the president uh, that the uh, increasing the retirement age was legal, even though uh, millions uh, of uh, French uh, are, are demonstrating. Let's talk about what was uh, a remarkable week uh, in Europe, not only is the contact group meeting for the 11th time, and I want to get to that in terms of the aid we have to give Ukraine, especially in the wake of leaks that show that, that their magazines are depleted. But I want to start first with the Secretary General uh, General's visit uh, to Kiev, and not just his visit to Kiev, but his implicit statement that Ukraine should be part of NATO. Um, and so walk us through, right, this is the first time he's visited because it was perceived as perhaps being an escalatory step. His, the alliance had committed to allowing Ukraine and Georgia uh, to join the alliance. But ultimately, if Sweden couldn't get past Turkey and Hungary, how's Ukraine going to do this? What, what does this visit mean? What are we setting up for Vilnius? Uh, because you know, two very uh, passionate sides on this. If Ukraine had been part of NATO, Russia would never have attacked 
oh my God, that would have been insanity that would have precipitated uh, a Russian invasion. Anyway, walk us through where we are right now and where it is we're going more importantly. Um, well, I, 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 well one, one thing real quick, just talking about uh, um, trash fires in Paris, uh, you know, just watch uh, on May 1st. That's when there's going to be the next big demonstration. That's traditionally May Day, as you know, uh, and some countries in Europe take that very seriously. Uh, and in Paris, I think you'll see a big demonstration. But, uh, but there haven't been that many since. There have been little ones here and there, but nothing that, that uh, like we saw a few weeks ago. But May 1st could be, so watch this space. Uh, but, but otherwise, in terms of the SecGen's visit, I, I don't read so much into what he said. Uh, he, he's essentially saying agreed language, as we say at NATO. Uh, you know, the um, communique that was agreed uh, in 2008 in Bucharest that said Georgia and Ukraine will be in NATO um, is pretty much what he said. Uh, he hasn't really gone outside the bounds of, of, of what has been said before. Uh, and he never does. He doesn't really make news. <laughs> and I don't think he made a lot uh, in, in Kiev either, except that he showed up. But I think that um, in terms of Vilnius, I don't see anything happening there. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of talk about uh, security guarantees and how can you, what do they need to look like and, and how can they be arranged? I don't foresee anything like that uh, being put together by a group of countries or whatever, certainly not by Vilnius, and NATO's not going to do anything by, by Vilnius along these lines either, for the reasons you stated, which is it won't get consensus. It will not get consensus, and not just by some of the outliers like Turkey or others who cause trouble, but uh, other nations, uh, some of the older allies who aren't quite there yet. Uh, and so, uh, so I, I, I didn't read so much in, into his visit. So you don't think that he leaned a little bit further, a farther forward in messaging that? Because the next thing I was going to ask you was, was that a little bit of strategic messaging uh, to the Russians that that's a step we would consider, um, you know, to try to get them to a negotiating table or more of a negotiating frame of mind or, or, or not? Or am I reading too much into this? His language that he used is, is standard language, as far as I'm concerned. Right. And, and I didn't see anything in the news media or on Twitter, you know, or anything that picked right. up that this was a new position. And when I heard it, I didn't, you know, I said to myself, this, this is the same old section. This, there's not uh, something necessarily new there. Right. I'm, I'm willing to be convinced that, in fact, there was. But I don't I don't think so. I, I think he. You know, he knows he you know, he's a good vote counter. You know, he's like right. he's like an old politician there in the Congress. He can he can count the votes and he he knows what the vote is. So I don't think he's I don't think he said anything um, different than what we've heard right. other countries and the sections have said in the past. He's he's a two time Norwegian uh, prime minister. So, yes, he knows how to count votes. And he's certainly yeah. been uh, leading the Atlantic Alliance long enough where he knows how to count those votes. Uh, as as well, albeit uh, fewer uh, of them. Um, everybody, I don't know if we have to discuss Sweden anymore because that was the consensus view that all of us had is that after uh, Erdogan's, uh, after the Turkish election, we'll see what happens. And uh, obviously, uh, is, is that a little too optimistic to assume the Swedes are coming in in June? Um, you know, I, there, there was something said a couple of days ago, and I just I cannot remember who said it, but it said it with a lot of credibility, which is that... Uh, after the elections, uh, the, the, the Turks are going to uh, lift the curtain. So I, um, you know, that's that's I, I think that will happen. And I, if I 
could remember who it, who it was, you could see the credibility behind the statement. But I'm starting to feel pretty confident that once we get that election behind us, this is this will move quickly for Sweden. Yeah, I'm totally with Jim. And uh, just to remind Jim, uh, I have these moments as well. It was Secretary of Defense Austin who said it, who has that's a heck right. of a lot of credibility. Right. OK, uh, uh, well, that's right. so that's that's yes. I mean, he he is the one who who did say it. And uh, he was standing next to Paul Johnson, uh, the uh, Swedish uh, defense uh, secretary when he made that statement and, and right. sort of said, hey, look, thanks very much for sticking with us. We're, we're going to get this over the finish line uh, soon. So as they would say, from from his mouth to God's or Erdogan's ears. Um, <laughs> talk, I just, well, at least in his mind, it is. Um, contact group meeting. Um, yep. We're seeing uh, right the drip, drip, drip of intelligence uh, disclosures um, uh, on this. Uh, certainly the timing of it is very bad, as we've discussed over the last couple of weeks. From from your standpoint, what is it new we should expect to see from the contact group? Obviously, the United States moving uh, ahead. Ukrainians is going to start training on M1s, which is good. Um, you know, in, industrial bases sort of gearing in, still not producing at the rate that we need. What, what do you what do you expect to see in this next phase coming out of the alliance in terms of support for Ukraine? And does the needle move, right? I mean, there were reports that A-29 uh, light attack airplanes that the United States was considering transferring those. Uh, I think it's like two dozen airplanes or so. Uh, anyway, I mean, what's, what's your sense on whether any of these needles are moving and moving at the rate any faster than they should be moving? Because it does seem a bit glacial, even if more aid is being provided. Well, I, I think, you know, what was interesting to me uh, is what they said uh, before they walked into the session at, uh, at Ramstein, um, because it's not that there's something new and something sexy. It's what they said was the kind of things that we know Ukraine will need if they're going to do the offensive. So, so just to, to unpack that a little bit, um, they said that the, that the theme of, of, the, uh, of, of this session was going to be air defense and, and enablers, okay? So air defense, right. I mean, we saw from leaked documents, they're still worried about air defense. So, okay, roger that, that's, that's good. But enablers, that's excellent uh, because we know that enablers are, the, those are the things that make, a, they make an offensive work. So um, we'll see what, what new might come out when it comes to enablers. But I will say that the package that the U.S. just released, again, was something that I, it wasn't something new, et cetera, but it was the nuts and bolts that they need for this offensive. And so it was high Mars ammo, 155, 105, uh, tow, I guess, tow-2 missile, missiles, uh, AT-4, you know, anti-tank missiles, um, a lot of small arms ammo. So, you know, they're stocking up on the things that they're going to run out of if they're going to have a pretty violent um, offensive, which is going to be uh, digging out those Russians uh, from their entrenchments. So, so I think what we're going to see isn't something new and sexy, but we're going to see the things that uh, we know Ukraine will need for the offensive. And just a couple other points. One is it looks like, uh, thank God, uh, and this happened a few weeks ago, but the army turned around its thinking on the Abrams and instead of making them out of whole cloth, right. they're going to do some adjustments to some uh, Abrams that they have in stock uh, concerning the armor, I think. Right. And they're going to use already made Abrams and they begun, they're going to start training like very shortly, which means that those Abrams could be delivered in the fall. So that's good news. It's, at least it's not going to be next year. So right. that's good news. And the second thing is that the polls, I, as last I heard, the polls are working some MiG-29 uh, MiG transfers. 
So, um, so that's good too, whether it's uh, for, for use as spares or in fact, they're in flyable condition, I don't know, but we're gonna continue right. to work on their Air Force. So, so there's some good things there, no great breakthroughs and, uh, and things that are nice uh, and uh, exciting, but I think we don't want nice and exciting right now. We want the nuts and bolts. Uh, and that's what looks like it's heading into, uh, into Ukraine. Um, I, I want to uh, bring uh, Patrick uh, into uh, the uh, discussion uh, because you've been very patient. Um, a, a lot of um, last week and over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about um, uh, Emmanuel uh, Macron's uh, statement. And I would commend uh, folks, uh, as I mentioned last week, to uh, Dove's piece uh, last week uh, in the Hill uh, on, uh, on that. Um, and uh, the French side has done, uh, I, I think, a pretty credible job to sort of walk back the president's statements and say, well, there have been misunderstandings. The United States remains an ally. You know, we remain committed to stability. All we were trying to say is we have to be thoughtful about the risks around uh, uh, Taiwan uh, and a crisis over Taiwan. Um, and that, in turn, seems to be driving Washington to try to turn the temperature down, right? Janet Yellen saying, we're looking for a constructive relationship with the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese have sort of brushed that off. I mean, and every, uh, my tendency has been to regard every one of these dial it down moments to be something where the Chinese look at that as weakness and dial it up. What's the last week been uh, in terms of messaging? Because Beijing has been on a bit of a roll, right? With, in the wake of the Macron visit, in the wake of the Lula visit, uh, right? It goes back a couple of weeks to the negotiation of the deal between Saudis and Emiratis, excuse me, Saudis and uh, Iranians. There was another uh, agreement and, and, you know, on, you know, a couple of other agreements in which Beijing has been involved. Give us this sense, because really at the end of the day, the elephant in the room, even in Ukraine, is China. Well, yeah, indeed, Vago. And uh, even here in Lithuania, uh, with NATO officials, we're, we're talking about uh, China very much so. Um, I'm here with the Indo-Pacific four countries that are preparing for the Vilnius summit. Um, and it's fascinating to see um, the play on, on China. It, it's hard to just say it's going in one direction. It's, it's multi-directional all the time, every week with China. Yeah, there's definitely a, an attempt uh, afoot to lower the temperature and to prepare for some high-level meetings that will occur in China. So Nick Burns, our ambassador, who's been uh, held back from any high-level meetings while he's been ambassador in China, had his highest-level meeting by meeting with the party's head of essentially commercial uh, trade enterprises. And that seems to be setting up a visit by our Commerce Secretary. You mentioned Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary's um, olive branch speech at SAIS yesterday. That seems to be anticipating her potential visit. Um, and then maybe even Secretary Zay Blinken will finally get his visit to Beijing. It wasn't allowed this month um, when he was doing the G7 foreign ministers, but maybe uh, in next month or beyond, uh, he'll be going to China. So that's part of the expectation that China wants to create, that you know, now you're coming around to our way of thinking and saying better things, uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you. But uh, on the other hand, um, even the Janet Yellen speech at size, uh, it was a contradictory speech because it, it also uh, made very clear that the U.S. will protect our interests um, and our allied interests when it comes to technology and to economic interests. And indeed, the administration will put out an executive order that's going to have far reaching uh, impact because it's going to enumerate for AI, for semiconductor chips, for quantum computing what's to be banned in terms of dealing with business uh, with China and what's to be reported heavily and regulated. 
Um, and if, if things are not on there, for instance, let's just take the question of uh, Chinese batteries for the growing EV market. If Ford, you know, Ford companies allowed to do business only with China and CATL and they start building battery production facilities across the United States, that's not going to sit well with Congress or a lot of the American populace. Um, and I think um, those, you know, the devil's in the details over what the administration does on these things. So, so Janet Yellen on the one hand said, we don't want to decouple with China. On the other hand, she said, uh, we're going to protect our interests. Well, again, what specifically does that mean? Because that's what um, the industrial policy essentially that that's uh, in implying is something that our allies and partners are not on the same sheet of music on as as they are on our military affairs. So, you know, this week we had Indo-PACOM, U.S. Forces Korea Commander, uh, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, Jed Royal, all testified before Congress and they made it very clear that we're doing more than ever with our allies and partners. It's an asymmetric advantage in terms of our alliance network, all true. But that military uh, cooperation is still uh, a point of tension when you get to the industrial economic trade policy where we right. don't necessarily have clear answers or guidelines or, or and limits. And the Chinese are trying to make sure that they're limiting what we do to contain their uh, economic growth. And, and this is a, a point of tension. So um, many other issues here that I can talk about, including on the European front, right? So well, so I want to get to that. So right on the on the European front um, has and I'm, I'll, I'm going to go to Dove after this, have the French kind of put the Macron genie back in the bottle, right? I mean, a lot of Alice uh, Rufo, uh, the director general of international relations uh, and strategy at the French Armed Forces Ministry was in Washington, had successful meetings, both, I think, at the State Department, as well as at the Pentagon. She's the Colin Call uh, equivalent. Uh, you've heard a lot of messaging coming out that the United States is an ally. Uh, you know, China is a, is a part economic partner or interest, uh, right? Trying to put this, uh, you know, we support democracy, uh, uh, right? We, you know, un, unwaveringly support Ukraine uh, and, and oppose Russia. I mean, if from, from your standpoint, especially being there in Vilnius, have the French put that sort of put that back in the bottle? The French have, the Cadre has, uh, but not Macron. Macron had a phone call with Biden, um, as did the European Commission uh, President uh, von der Leyen. And, and she uh, mentioned in a tweet that they had a great discussion. She with President Biden, including on the Taiwan issue, how important that was. Macron put out his own uh, statement and he failed to mention that Taiwan. <laughs> and of course, that's the sore point because it was Macron's uh, interview on the way home from China. Right. Um, that uh, seemed to distance him in terms of trying to build a special relationship with Xi at the expense of NATO, at the expense of Taiwan. Um, and I think he's keeping that wound open a little bit because he wants that special relationship or, and he's using it. Part of that's good strategy because, again, we want to probe China on uh, whether they'll be uh, distant from Russia rather than join the war in Ukraine, in effect. Um, but part of it is uh, is grandstanding and, and wanting that uh, you know gallist special uh, uh, attention and 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 I was on a panel today here in Vilnius with the, the French ambassador who's responsible for Indo-Pacific affairs and he was in a very difficult position. He did a very good job talking about um, how right. he really and the French really are on the same uh, the same strategy here. Um, but he also avoided what Macron said in particular. I, I would uh, point out that, right, I mean, if you talk to folks in Paris and, and uh, uh, from the Elysee, they would point out 
that there was an enormous amount of coordinate. They, they are not specific, but they make the case there was intimate coordination with the White House as we did this. So don't make it seem as though, you know, this this was a total freelance. Although I will also say it, we're talking to many of the same people in Washington who were very dismayed by his comments, whether whether they're yes. sitting in the, in the White House or anywhere, anywhere. Just else. because no. it was coordinated. Yeah, just because it was coordinated doesn't mean the president didn't uh, speak beyond his brief. Correct. Just just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. Uh, 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 Dove, uh, briefly, kind of your your take on whether or not the French have put the genie back in the bottle. Well, they haven't for a couple of reasons. The first is that Macron keeps talking about strategic autonomy. He talked about it well before he went to China. He's talked about it since. And strategic autonomy clearly means Europe somewhat independent of the United States with guess who in charge? France, of course. So that doesn't really allay people's concerns. The other is simply that the real issue was how much further could we go with France beyond where we are now? Because of all the suspicions over the years that we all know about, France never left the alliance, remember? France may have left the integrated military command and then it came back in 2009, but it was always an ally. We've got all kinds of allies. Lula is an ally, for God's sake, in Brazil. We, that's the, the Rio Treaty. Being an ally doesn't mean you're not going to go off on your own and do your own thing. And so it seems to me that what the real damage Macron has done is not to the normal functioning that between, say, DOD and the, and the uh, Rue Saint-Dominique or, or Défense, but rather it's simply not creating a situation where it becomes much more difficult for us to go further with France than we already are. And that's a real problem given where we need to be together on Ukraine and on China and on Taiwan. Um, I, I would uh, uh, agree with you wholeheartedly, Dove. And for a while, Macron had enough plausible deniability to keep making the case that we're talking about European uh, or greater European autonomy because the United States will have more of its bandwidth Let's be the guys who fill in in Europe. Let's be the guy who fill in in the Persian Gulf. Let's be the guy who fills in uh, as Europe in Africa, allowing the United States to focus more on the Indo-Pacific. Uh, Indo and in sort of one stroke, he sort of damaged that. And all the people who've been actually advocating why uh, France is no longer a four-letter word uh, in, in Washington, which, which was um, you know, a setback given how hard people have worked for 15 years. Uh, on, on moving away from the freedom uh, fry uh, uh, episodes. Um, Patrick, I want to go back to you because again, another uh, you know in leaked intelligence uh, uh, documents on uh, China's Mach 3 uh, uh, surveillance uh, drone um, that could explain some of the unidentified high-speed objects that people have been seeing around carrier battle groups, for example, revelations that balloons have overflown uh, carrier battle groups uh, in, in the past. Um, we have the disclosures of uh, Chinese hacking uh, efforts against satellites, uh, which has uh, been very important. And of course, we did hear from Lung Aquilino, who reassured members of Congress, look, I, even though we're scrounging ammunition from around the world, I have enough ammunition in the event of a crisis over Taiwan. We heard from General La Camera, and we also heard from PDAS uh, Royal. What is it, right? Give us, give us sort of a sense on all of this and their testimony and how they address some of these thorny questions. Yeah, and I'll even throw in uh, State Department uh, China coordinator Rick Waters, who was speaking here today in Vilnius, because um, I asked him about the crisis communications with China, and I'll get to that in a second. 
Um, I think Admiral Aquilino uh, made the biggest headline by simply trying to reassure everyone in Congress and beyond that uh, war is not inevitable, war is not even imminent, uh, and that our inventories are stocked and ready. Um, that's a pretty positive uh, tone for a man who, uh, you know, Admiral Aquilino is, uh, is a pretty tough character in terms of building up U.S. Uh, forces and posture in the region, and that's a, that's a very reassuring message. Um, and it's one that was echoed by uh, General Camera talking about Korea, but saying, by the way, don't take us for granted, especially as we celebrate the 70th anniversary of the U.S.-Korean uh, Mutual Defense Treaty uh, this year and as President Yoon prepares for a state visit next week. Um, and then um, uh, PDAS, uh, Jed Royal, uh, making it very clear that we're doing more than ever in terms of exercises and you know, just enumerated the various things we're doing with the Philippines and with Korea and with Australia and on and on. It's a very impressive uh, factual list. But all of that is in contrast to both the messages coming out of these leaked documents uh, that are being, uh, you know, dripping out one by one, um, and uh, also at odds with um, some of what China's not doing, which is namely talking to us about how to prevent escalation. So the first issue, when you get to hijacking enemy satellites is, uh, you know, they, they're trying to mimic our satellites, knock them down quickly, going and well beyond what Russia did by taking out Viasat network for a few hours before the invasion of Ukraine in February of last year. Um, you know, that's that's a very worrisome capability that they are seriously working on. Then you have this hypersonic spy drone program, the WZ-8 program. Um, as you say, that may account for some of these UFOs. Indeed, it probably is. <laughs> um, and uh, on top of that, you have um, the Center for New American Security uh, did a tabletop exercise this week for and with uh, House uh, Select Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, Mike Gallagher, um, on a Taiwan scenario. And basically, uh, the answer to that uh, scenario was we would not be able to resupply Taiwan once conflict breaks out. And we're in a window of maximum danger, says Mike Gallagher. And he also took the business community to task for what he called a dereliction of fiduciary duty, not being serious about these scenarios. So that's in contrast to that very optimistic testimony we've heard from Admiral Aquilino. And how do we square the circle? Well, unfortunately, we can't. They're both true, right? We are at a period of maximum danger, but we are also doing more with allies and partners. And we don't think war is about to break out, but it could. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's the uncomfortable and intensifying uh, major power relationship we're in. And meanwhile, China is still refusing to talk about guardrails, to talk about preventing uh, harassing intercepts, dangerous intercepts. It's going to continue some maritime drills off of Qingdao, you know, now that it's finished the bigger drills off of Taiwan. Um, and, um, you know, Rick Waters, getting back to the coordinator, he, he was the one Chinese, uh, one, one senior U.S. official who did have direct talks with the Chinese, uh, and uh, unlike the Secretary of State. Um, and I asked him about uh, the chances for uh, further talks. He, it, it was interesting how we characterized what he called, and I'll just use his words, a balloon that flew over parts of the Midwest, uh, quote unquote, <laughs> is how he, he phrased the spy balloon problem. Um, and that was kind of an understatement, but that seems to be a deliberate understatement to say, look, we're not going to stick the spy balloon in your eye if you let Secretary of State Blinken have discussions. And you're not doing us a favor, by the way. You know, this is something that is in the interest of China. And let's just roll back the tape a few years when chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Milley, had to call his counterparts on two occasions to reassure the Chinese that the Trump administration was not about to launch a preemptive attack uh, because it was fearing that losing the election. That was the Chinese benefit. And, and so Rick Waters, the final point here, 
is right. these talks are not about changing Chinese policy. They're about averting miscalculation. They're in our interest. And I think maybe the Chinese are going to open up the window, but they've been, as Bonnie Glazer reminded me today, not showing a lot of eagerness, even, even today with all these other signs that maybe they'll let commerce and, and treasury in. But I don't know if they're going to let the miscalculation uh, argument get much traction soon. We have to go lightning round really quickly, Michael. I want to bring you in this because I meant to ask you this question earlier of uh, the leaks uh, and how they're playing on the Hill, because there seems to be a little bit more of a bipartisan tone to some of this, as opposed to the shrillness we've seen uh, in the past. Or am I misunderstanding that a, a little bit more of a realistic? Why did this kid have access? But then again, we have a million people with top secret and TSI clearances, right? I mean, hence the new data policies, but what are lawmakers saying in public and in private from your perspective and more, more focus in private on how we resolve this? It took us a while to get to where we are, right? It's not like one administration decided some kid who wants to show off to his friends um, you know, should do this. We had, you know, whether it was Chelsea Manning or whether it was Snowden or whether it's this, you know, these have been building up for years and that goes, it doesn't even address Hansen and other big leaks we've had in the past. Well, look, you're, you're right. I mean, uh, I think they don't really know how to resolve it because they are asking questions like you asked, like how does a 21-year-old have all this access to information? And a lot of people are saying, I thought a lot of this information was only available on a need-to-know basis. So, you know, Mike Rogers, uh, who chairs Armed Services, and Mike Turner, who chairs Intel, sent a joint letter to Lloyd Austin uh, pressing for some accountability and answers regarding the unauthorized disclosure of this of the classified material. So I think they're really in the uh, information gathering stage to figure out how to address this in the future. And I think you're also very right that this was uh, there's been a bipartisan response to this. I mean, outside a few outliers like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who came out very strong uh, in favor uh, of the leaker, along with uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh, expressing sympathy uh, for the leaker. Uh, but, you know, the other folks on the hard right that are you know skeptical about Ukraine uh, have kept uh, silent. And I think that even she's felt some pushback because she actually appeared on um, Steve Bannon's podcast earlier this week, where she stepped back saying that the leaker's got to face some penalties uh, for what he's done. Uh, and she's got hit hard publicly, even by folks by Lindsey Graham, saying it was the most irresponsible statement uh, you could make. So there's definitely bipartisan right. agreement on this. It just I just don't think they know what to do yet. Uh, in uh, indeed, and and the documents just keep leaking, right? I mean, today uh, there were stories about how the the Russians were working to try to tip Germany uh, and 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 convince Germany uh, to move away from support uh, for uh, Ukraine, which I think uh, ran uh, in the post. All I would say is, these young people are contractors, right? It's not necessarily that they're young people; it's just that there are a lot of people who are associated with the moving of this information. And so that appears to be how they're getting access to this information. Uh, and I think that, you know, we've heard from Admiral Mike Rogers on our show, former NSA director and, and Cybercom commander, that we can actually use technology. Uh, and indeed, there's still a lot of technology, right? I mean, so obviously more questions than answers at this point. But thank you very much for that. Dove, let me uh, go to you. Uh, and unfortunately, we've got about two minutes left in the show. One minute for Israel, one minute on Iran. Um, give us uh, an update on Israel, the National Guard. Uh, uh, episode. Um, obviously, demonstrations have been uh, a little quieter about the judicial reforms, but still, uh, and a little bit of a backing away from creating a, a National Guard. Walk us through where we stand in Israel, and then I want to give uh, ask you a last question on Iran, because uh, you were on the job in the Pentagon 40 years ago uh, when the U.S. Embassy in Beirut was uh, destroyed. But start us off on Israel, and uh, I'll have my follow-up on Iran. Okay. Uh, yes, on the National Guard, uh, 
BB seems to be doing his kind of thing. He said he would create it, but he's just a long time doing it. There's been a lot of pushback, obviously, from the military in particular, as well as from the intelligence community uh, and those outside the security uh, organizations as well. Uh, so given all the other things on his plate, uh, he's he's kind of maneuvering around. The question is, of course, whether Mr. Ben Gvir, the extreme right winger who would be running this uh, private army, uh, will walk out of the government because of that. He, he keeps threatening to do so. My guess is that he won't. He, he likes being a minister. Um, the, the prime minister also fired the defense minister, and now he's brought him back, Mr. Gallant, General Gallant, I should say. And Gallant made a statement that I think is of serious significance. He said Iran is uh, building up its its financial stocks because it is trying to support a multi-front war against Israel. The, as you know, there were uh, missile attacks from the north, from Hezbollah, coordinated, it appears, with Hamas. Uh, and so the Iranians are still trying to uh, bring their forces through their equipment, rather, through Syria both to the north uh, and somehow getting them to Hamas as well. So there's a real fear of a multi-front war, uh, especially given that the, the uh, riot, the demonstrations are not going to be over until this Supreme Court thing is, is totally settled. There's also one other problem with Israel. There was an article in Foreign Affairs, uh, the latest issue about the, the, the need to recognize that Israel simply is no longer the democracy people think it is. Uh, Netanyahu certainly did not help his case by naming a lady named May Golan, who is an associate of this Mr. Ben Gvir, to be the consul general in New York. New York area has the largest uh, grouping of Jews in the world outside Israel. This lady is proud to be uh, what she calls uh, a fascist herself. She says that she campaigned right. to expel African asylum seekers. She called former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett a suicide bomber. And this is the person that BB sends to New York. He clearly just doesn't care uh, how much defends the American community and the American commun Jewish community is simply not going to uh, work very hard to support this guy. Uh, on Iran, the big story, of course, is the uh, Iranian forced uh, one of our subs or so as claims uh, to surface in the Gulf. We've denied it. One thing that can't be denied is that this that the Chinese hosted the foreign ministers of Saudi Arabia and Iran in Beijing to formalize the agreement that she had worked earlier. Just another example of, of China's intrusions into the Middle East in a way that we just don't seem to figure out how to uh, deal with. And, and have we learned anything in the last 40 years about dealing with Iran since the bombing, Dove? Any lessons there I suspect, from that episode I to, to defer today? I, oh. Well, look, uh, on we hit back at them. There's no question. Uh, uh, we've taken some of their leaders out. We that. Uh, but on the other hand, we really haven't figured out what we want to do. I mean, we, we regime change just isn't on the cards. Uh, we don't have any presence in Iran at all, which means we don't understand what's really going on. We can't. It's hard to reach out to the many, many people who do oppose uh, the mullahs. In fact, uh, the Shah of Iran's son was just in Israel. Uh, which is kind of unusual, uh, pointing out that most Iranians are not supporting the Ayatollahs. But we haven't figured out how to exploit that, and it's 40 years and, and ongoing.
everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, great to have the team uh, back together again. Hope you guys have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you on again uh, next week. Uh, and a special thanks to all of you for joining us, and a special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. We look forward to seeing you again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Thanks very much, and have a great weekend.